FDBHDD is reminding Georgians to ask their doctor about alternatives to opioid pain medication. Alternatives such as over-the-counter medications and physical therapy can be used to manage pain. More information at opioidresponse.info. Thanks for listening to the Political Rewind podcast. Be sure to like and follow us and rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's time for another edition of Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. Um, Of course, we all know that uh, late last year, Donald Trump announced he was uh, going to seek another a term as president, but but it was kind of a quiet launch. Uh, he hasn't had much of a campaign since then. He's done a couple of relatively small events. But uh, yesterday and today, I think it's safe to say that the 2024 presidential campaign is really going to begin kicking into gear. And it's really about time for that. Yes, it feels two years away, and it is. But typically, this is the time when candidates who are serious about running for president start getting their acts together and, um, and making moves to uh, uh, enter the race in one form or another. So we're actually going to start today by talking about Nikki Haley's entry into the race and a little bit more about the Republican presidential race in general. Then we've got some legislative news to talk about. And we're going to look at the um, state laws that Fannie Willis said some time ago were the criminal, the statutes that she was looking at if she intended at some point to bring criminal charges against anyone who was being investigated by the special grand jury. So we got that and more with a great panel today, starting with Greg Bluestein, my regular Wednesday partner from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Greg, for me, you'd remind me of the old days. You're in Charleston, South Carolina. You're sitting in a vehicle next to the venue where Nikki Haley, who released a video announcing yesterday, will actually give her announcement speech today, right? Uh, you got it. But in, in the old days, we didn't have Zoom. So at least we can see each other live <laughs> over the internet uh, as we talk internally. But no, I'm, I'm here in Charleston. It's actually my the, the home of my of my ancestors. So there's actually a Bluestein's department store right around the corner that's no longer operating, but the building is still there and it's painted in bright blue. Wow, um, that's really wonderful. All right. Uh, well, we're going to ask you in a minute to set the stage for us with the uh, Nikki Haley announcement. But uh, let me introduce our panel. Uh, the rest of the panel, we have a great team of political scientists here today, uh, starting with Tammy Greer, political science professor at Clark Atlanta University. How are you, Tammy? I'm well. It's an exciting news day for us political junkies. Yeah, you know, we all love seeing presidential campaigns launch. Uh, Audrey Haynes is back with us, too. She, of course, political science professor at the University of Georgia and oversees the Applied Politics program at UGA, which trains students on how they can get involved in careers and helps give them an entry point for getting involved in careers in politics. Audrey, how are you? I'm doing very well. In fact, I just got an email from a student alum letting me know that she was going to be the finance director on a presidential campaign, but she couldn't let me know which one it was, but it's not Nikki Haley. So, Wow. Wow. That's a very exciting thing for a relatively young uh, professional in the field, I suspect. Yes, pretty young. Um, 
actually a student before the applied politics program started, but we were doing things back in the day that were setting students up for success in the, in the same way. So I have my guess as to who it is. I think we're going to have a pretty crowded um, and interesting field. Okay. Um, and we're joined by uh, Professor Emeritus now of political science at Emory University, Alan Abramowitz. Uh, Alan, you may not be actively teaching as fully as you used to, uh, but you haven't lost your interest in following politics. And I know you're looking forward to watching this campaign begin to unfold today too, right? Alan, have we got you? I think we've. Uh, I think uh, Chase McGee is going to try to see if we can reconnect uh, uh, Alan in a minute. Um, so let's do this, uh, Greg. Set the stage for us, uh, just in terms of the uh, what we you're, you're going to see there. What's the venue? Uh, what size crowd do you imagine is going to turn out? And are there any Republicans who are going to be standing on that stage? whether they are going to formally announce her, uh, uh, endorse her or not, who want to be there with her right now, or is everybody still a little nervous about Donald Trump? Okay, yeah, that's a lot of questions, but let me start with the first one. We're at the Charleston Visitor Center, um, and there's already a line out the door a couple hours before the event, so it speaks to some enthusiasm for Nikki Haley here in her home state of uh, of South Carolina. Um, you know, she's going to tread lightly around Donald Trump, uh, her her aides and advisors have made it clear that she's running against Joe Biden, not Donald Trump. We saw in her launch video, she didn't dwell on Donald Trump at all. I doubt that she'll speak much about Donald Trump during her formal kickoff today. Instead, she's going to talk about a new generation of Republican leaders. She was the youngest governor uh, in the nation at the time when she served, when she was elected here in South Carolina. Um, <clears throat> she's going to talk about, uh, you know, appealing to more mainstream Republicans. But... At the same time, one of her biggest challenges is getting over the Trump factor. She's only at three or four percent in many of these polls we've seen so far. She has low name recognition and she has a long history of currying favor with Donald Trump, even though she said negative things about him. She said a lot of positive things about him, too. So it's hard to establish her as the sort of the the non-Trump candidate when you when you're talking about endorsements. Um, even in her own home state, she faces a struggle, not just from Donald Trump and, and Ron DeSantis, the Florida governor who's likely to get in, but from Senator Tim Scott, who's yeah. making the first moves towards the presidential run. He's actually going to be here in Charleston tomorrow on another step, it seems, towards running for the White House. He's going to be on a listening tour. And so when it comes to endorsements, um, you know, she has a she has a, a South Carolina Congress member who is also allied with Donald Trump, who's endorsing her. But we haven't seen any other big name endorsements quite yet. Yeah. Uh, Tim Scott tomorrow, as you pointed out, launches what is expected to be a national listening tour uh, in which he will really uh, start looking at, at the possibility of announcing his own campaign. Greg, let me ask you one more question and then I want to bring in the rest of the panel in in your preview piece about uh, Haley announcing. You talk about her uh, longtime and deep connections with Republicans in Georgia. And uh, one of the paragraphs, uh, you write this, Haley has long kept close ties to Georgia, wading into competitive races and honing relationships with grassroots activists, well-connected operatives, and emerging Republican stars as she readies her own long-expected presidential bid. So uh, explain to us what that means. Who's she been 
uh, uh, coming into the state for, she was here for Herschel Walker most recently. She was here for Herschel Walker. She was here for Governor Kemp, both campaigns. She was here for uh, then-Senator Kelly Leffler at a time when Kelly Leffler needed her the most, at a time when she was facing a really tough challenge from Doug Collins and lots of questions over her loyalty to Trump. Um, and that endorsement really was seen as a as one of the turning points in Kelly Leffler's campaign for a full term um, and, and a campaign to beat Doug, Doug Collins in that special election. So, look, you know, we, we've talked about a lot here on the show that these presidential candidates, they don't just start from scratch, right? They build their base, they build their network, they cultivate their support over a long period of time. And we've seen that for years with uh, Nikki Haley in Georgia. It's not a long, it's not a long trip, um, but she's been getting IOUs from lawmakers. She's also just equally, if not more importantly, making those connections with the Georgia donors and Georgia activists while she's here. She's held so many fundraisers and different events in Georgia. I talked to one operative who said there might not be any candidate, national candidate, um, who's visited Georgia more than Nikki Haley. So that's why that's why Georgia is going to play such an interesting role in Nikki Haley's campaign. Well, let's start talking about uh, the themes that she uh, is going to be running on. And, and um, panel, let me play just a little bit of the video that she released yesterday in which she first announced her candidacy before the big formal speech uh, today. And I'm going to play about the first 45 seconds of it just because it sort of sets the stage for how she describes who who she is. And then I'll ask you all to comment. Here you go. The railroad tracks divided the town by race. I was the proud daughter of Indian immigrants. Not black, not white. I was different. But my mom would always say your job is not to focus on the differences, but the similarities. And my parents reminded me and my siblings every day how blessed we were to live in America. Some look at our past as evidence that America's founding principles are bad. They say the promise of freedom is just made up. Some think our ideas are not just wrong, but racist and evil. Nothing could be further from the truth. So um, let's go around. Um, let me let me start with you on that, Audrey Haynes, and then uh, we'll give everybody else a chance. Just what did you think about just the way she started off by positioning herself? Audrey? Yes, well, that is positioning, what you heard. And it was interesting. I think people, when they listen to it, um, may hear different things. But the first thing I thought of is that she's putting herself as someone who can bridge gaps. She's someone who's always been a little different, right? Um, And she's got all these messages meant to appeal to different sectors. And, And the context is important. You've got the Trump wing, you've got the establishment wing, and we've got data that's saying Trump's hold on the party is going down. You have a large number of independents. She wants to be the candidate who can bridge the gap, who isn't about division, uh, but is someone who thinks positively. There's a really positive message in there about bringing uh, sides together. Um, Alan, I would, you know, I understand what Audrey's saying. At the same time, she says there are people who think America is evil, uh, that Mm -hmm. our founding principles are bad. I mean, that's, that's not a particularly positive message. And I, and I'm not sure that the 
the you know voters really buy that uh, the country is evil. Not the kind of voters I think Nikki Haley is hoping to attract, which are a little bit more mainstream than the people who will support Trump. Right. Well, I think she's pretty clearly trying to straddle the divide between the the kind of Trump populist wing of the party and the established Republican establishment. Um, some of the points she makes in, in the video are, uh, you know, harken back to the Reagan era, yep. um, sort of mm-hmm. sort of a tough, tough foreign policy. Um, you know, we, we, we need we need a strong uh, to be strong uh, uh, in our uh, in dealing with Russia and China. Um, at, at the same time, um, you know, she's got some points in there that are designed, I think, to appeal to the uh, the, the Republican base. You know, sort of owning the libs and the, and the, and that sort of thing, but uh, you know, frankly, I I don't see her uh, style as appealing particularly to the hardcore base of the Republican Party today. Um, she's sort of too nice, <laughs> and she she um, she she tries to get to get beyond that and to sort of bring, you know, make some culture war kinds of uh, arguments, but. Um, I think she's going to have a tough time kind of competing with the likes of Trump and, and even Ron DeSantis, you know, when it comes to really stirring up the base. Um, and, and, and that's really what it takes, I think, nowadays to win a Republican primary. So I, I sort of question her, her ability to, to do that. So she pulls her foreign policy credentials from her time serving as ambassador to the U.N. under President Trump. Uh, Tammy, just to make the point that Alan's making about maybe she's too nice. One of, what's clearly going to be a signature line as she goes out on the campaign trail is talking about how if you cross her, essentially, she's going to kick you right back. And it hurts more when it, you're kicked by a woman wearing heels. I think it's pretty clear that that's going to become an applause line throughout her campaign. But Tammy, there's an irony here. Because on one hand, she paints a picture of America as not a country with a big racial divide, that we're not a country of racists. And yet, later in the video, she talks essentially about how she responded to the massacre at Mother Emanuel Church in Charleston. What, what of course, we know she did was was to take down the Confederate flag as the official flag of South Carolina. But if Dylan Roof wasn't a racist, I don't know who was it's a, it's an odd sort of mixed message there it's a huge mixed message that nikki haley um masterfully does all the time um so when i looked at that video um and watching nikki haley throughout these last few years um in the video uh nikki haley is full of contradictions um so how can you on the one hand um, deny that you know some of these actions in the United States, um, the creation of what is this United States was built on racism and oppression of peoples. Uh, not to mention that her parents immigrated from a British colony that was created um, out of oppression and racism. Um, when I listened to the video, um, to you know, one of the first words she says that she was neither black nor white, and this is an attempt 
for her to be racially ambiguous, um, to allow for those that are within the GOP that have such tendencies to be comfortable with voting for her. Um, and, and I thought to myself that just because you continuously say over and over again, um, one thing that doesn't make it real. And the denialism that comes through that video um, is, is, is concerning to me because she represents um, people who have had some challenges, particularly in, uh, in India itself, as well as here in the United States. I also thought that it was interesting um, to Alan's point that Nikki Haley's tone has always been one of positivity, yet that positive tone is cloaked in the same words used by Sarah Huckabee Sanders after the State of the Union, as well as others in the GOP who like to deny the existence of some of these challenges in the United States. Greg? Yeah, and Bill, uh, to Professor Haynes's point, too, with the with the with her former students saying uh, he or she's already lined up another gig with another presidential contender. It's very clear here that Donald Trump has failed to clear the field whatsoever. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, we could have Tim Scott in the race. Ron DeSantis is likely to get in the race. Mike Pence is likely to get in the race. Governor Kemp is even making some rumblings, at least to try to stay in the conversation. Uh, how many other Republicans could could enter this race, right? So um, we have this, you know, we're not sure who's going to take up the, the non-Trump field or how many candidates will clash directly with Trump. Uh, that remains to be seen. Same with how the potential criminal charges could impact his campaign. But what we do know right now, and it's very clear, is that Donald Trump hasn't scared anyone out of the field. Um, I want to talk about that in just a minute. Before we do, though, uh, Audrey, all of us who are political geeks love to talk about the lane that each candidate will try to occupy. Uh, And you've already referred to it, all of you, that she's sort of trying to straddle between the uh, uh, Trumpian kind of view of America and a more moderate or a more mainstream Republican uh, view of the country. But, but Audrey, we should not underestimate her power to win votes. I mean, she won her first race for governor at 38 years old, and she only won by four or five points, something like that. But in her second race, she won overwhelmingly. She tripled, I think, her totals from the first race. She does have the potential to reach uh, voters, but that was at a different time in our Republican politics. That is true. She's very popular in South Carolina. And, you know, having studied this for most of my life, the process itself, and Alan and and Tammy will agree, the process is very dynamic. She did something that I think um, she gets kudos for, and that she committed, she got out early. I remember when um, Libby Dole uh, stepped in to run. Mm. One of the things that she found out was uh, she wasn't early and all the money had been sucked up um, by by George W. Bush at that time. People didn't have, you know, uh, the deep pockets. So she's out there. She's raising money. She's heading to Iowa. She's heading to um, New Hampshire. And other people are there. In fact, when she's there, I think Mike Pence is going to be there. And you're right. This field could be bigger than the one we had in 2016. It could be better. For Republicans. But I do want to say one thing about messaging, because I think Tammy and, and Alan are right about the messaging, but this is a campaign message. It's rare in any campaign message that you're going to get the truth. You're going to get someplace in between the truth because your messaging is geared 
to resonate with particular groups and woo them. Um, you know, she would be uh, killing her campaign if she went out there and told the truth about some of the problems that exist in America, um, especially to that base. So she's out there early and we can only um, wait and sort of see what will happen. But the money's important and she really does need to increase her name recognition. Alan, before we leave this completely, I think it was interesting that Greg pointed out correctly that uh, clearly Donald Trump has not cleared the field which on one hand uh, could be a sign of his weakness. And I want to talk about that in a little more detail in a few minutes. On the other hand, uh, there's nothing that Trump is more delighted by (laughs) than the notion of a crowded Republican field. It's how he was able to, in 2016, to pick off one contender after another in that large field back then, Alan. Exactly. And and Trump uh, had a very positive uh, response to Nikki Haley, uh, announcement. Um, he is clearly pleased to see her entering the race, and I think he'll be pleased to see lots of other candidates entering the race, with the possible exception of Ron DeSantis. Um, because I think the, the conventional wisdom is that, you know, the more the divided the field is, the better Trump's chances are, because uh, he has a grip on on a uh, a pretty large share of the Republican base. Um, not a majority anymore, perhaps, but, you know, he probably has a solid, you know, 30, 35, 40 percent. And if the field is divided up four, five, six, seven ways, uh, and he's getting 30, 35, 40 percent, um, with the Republican primary rules that that are winner take all, uh, that would allow him to accumulate a lot of delegates very quickly, as he did in 2016, even if he's not uh, getting a majority or even close to a majority of the vote. So a large candidate field uh, would seem to favor tr- Trump. Um, and and uh, so I think that's why he's he's not at all bothered to see Nikki Haley entering the race. Uh, Greg, one final note, and then we'll move on to other uh, subjects. But um, if Haley's going to try to uh, uh, find a place somewhere between Trump and more mainstream Republicans, She's not going to have that lane to herself. In fact, others who were part of the Trump administration are going to be there as well. Possibly uh, Mike Pompeo, uh, almost certainly uh, uh, former Vice President Mike Pence. They'll certainly be in that lane. Uh, There may be others. Tim Scott, not a member of the administration, but also probably looking for a middle place there. And then you got Ron DeSantis out there, the culture warrior, which is clearly, if he enters, where he's headed. But we're going to have any number of people who are going to try to straddle between the pro-Trump and the more mainstream views of what Republicans should be now, yes? Yes, and they all have to deal with the same fundamental problem, which is the, the, the Republican presidential primary electorate is going to be smaller and more conservative than the mainstream electorate you might you'll you'll see in a November election or even you know a normal party primary. So it's going to be really tough for those sort of more mainstream candidates to emerge, especially with these winner take all rules reigning in some states. And we're going to start seeing the field winnow, right? And that's why Nikki Haley's making this announcement in South Carolina because it's not only her home state, but it's also the home of the first in the South primary um, next year. So, you know, if she can't do well in her home state, it's uh, and if she can't beat Tim Scott, if he ends up running here, um, it's going to be a very challenging campaign for her. And she might be looking more at a VP nod than anything else. But we'll see. 
All right. Um, it's going to be fascinating to watch how that campaign unfolds. It's going to be fascinating to see uh, how quickly others, uh, like a Mike Pence, like a Pompeo, like um, Ron DeSantis, uh, decide they better start making some moves now that we really do have a presidential campaign underway, at least two candidates now in the Republican field. All right, let's do this. Let's get a break out of the way. When we come back, let's talk for a few minutes about what's happening with Donald Trump, who is uh, seems to be losing uh, the backing of some of the biggest funders uh, that he counted on in past elections. Let's talk about why that might be happening and what it means. You're listening to Political Rewind. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. Welcome back to Political Rewind. We're joined today by Alan Abramowitz, Tammy Greer, Audrey Haynes, all political science uh, professors, of course, and Greg Bustein of the AJC, who's in Charleston, South Carolina, waiting for uh, Nikki Haley to make her formal announcement speech. Um, So, uh, Alan Abramowitz, we now know uh, that we know Trump has gotten off to a very, very slow start in his campaign. But as we all have acknowledged, that does not mean we should underestimate his potential uh, to win the nomination, especially given how few really percentage points you might need to win a given primary with a large field. But, but, but Alan, we now know that number one, the Coke network of big, big fundraisers who have been uh, major supporters of Trump in the past have, Coke has now said they're looking in other directions. And Club for Growth uh, is actually convening a a conference of a half dozen potential Republican candidates uh, to listen to how they're going to position themselves for possible runs, who they should give their money to. And Trump isn't invited. What's going on, Alan? Well, I think what we're seeing here is that... um, there is a, a widespread uh, perception among uh, a lot of these um, you know, conservative leaders, elites, uh, funding organizations, that uh, that Trump is a political liability, um, especially in the aftermath of the midterm elections, in which we saw that so many of the candidates that Trump endorsed ended, ended up losing races that were considered potentially winnable. So I think there's an effort here to to try to uh, coalesce behind an alternative to Trump, uh, try to find a candidate who have a, a better chance of leading the Republican Party to victory in 2024 uh, and, and helping the party's candidates down the ballot as, as well. Um, the question is whether they can actually coalesce behind any single alternative. Um, yeah. That's that's always the difficulty. Audrey, um, Nikki Haley, to go back to her just for a moment, refers to the fact that it's time for a new generation uh, of political leaders. Now, she could be talking about Donald Trump. She could just as easily be talking 
about uh, President Biden. She doesn't specifically mention either of them in that context. But but it does appear that Trump is having trouble raising money for the first time uh, since he was on the ascendancy. Yes. Uh, Nikki, by the way, talked about rediscovering fiscal responsibility. That's a big part of one of the things that she's saying. But mm. for uh, these donors, generally, Trump is just too risky. There's a great deal of uncertainty that comes with Trump. And remember, you know, he hasn't really done a great job staying on message. He brings this group of people <laughs> that love him to the point of, you know, zealotry. But at the same time, what has he delivered truly to the Republican Party in terms of his legislative agenda? And after the aftermath of the election, rather than talking about issues, still, what's he talking about? A stolen election still to this day. That's not something that investors want to hear. They want to hear him talking about things that matter to them, like taxes. Tammy? So I find it uh, fascinating when I'm listening to the funders um, having challenges with the former president, because in essence, the funders got what they wanted during his first administration. They got federal judges, lifetime appointments. They got three Supreme Court justices. They got um, tax breaks. Um, they got state governors um, and then certain laws within states um, passed. So uh, now these funders, interestingly, want to moderate um, whomever is at the top of the ticket. And it seems um, as, as part of Haley's uh, video, she noted that the GOP has lost seven out of the eight um, popular votes. And so in their minds, the moderation is an attempt to get the majority on their side, um, being that they've had the loud minority on their side for quite some time. Um, it goes back to um, an author, a, a scholar, Seth Hill, out of, um, out of California, who wrote a, a new book called Frustrated Majorities, where there is a notation that the majority is, is almost getting uh, frustrated with how the, the loud minority is taking over um, in our not only presidential politics, our state level, and even congressional politics. And so th to me, this is their way, the funders' way of attempting to shift the who says it, not necessarily what is said. All right. Um, we're going to be really fascinated to watch how the Trump campaign unfolds in the uh, months uh, ahead, I, I think. Um, Greg, uh, can we turn and talk about a couple of legislative issues with you that have popped up on the uh, radar? And I think... Well, let's focus primarily on one of them, because as you have written and others have written, when the legislative session began, Republican leaders said, yeah, let's stay away from culture issues, hot button issues. Let's focus on you know, jobs. Let's focus on economic development and the like. Mm, that only lasts so long. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I think we, we could cite a number of examples, but let's start with the most, uh, I think, the, the, the newest one, and that's Ed Setzler has now renewed the call for a religious liberty statute in Georgia. We, most of us, I think, remember that four years ago, three years ago, whatever, uh, that was one of the hot-button issues, uh, one of the most controversial issues of all. 
Um, and it never really was accomplished the way that the proponents wanted it. But here it comes right back again, an attempt to protect religious uh, institutions from uh, certain laws that are contrary to the beliefs of their faith. And doesn't this speak directly to what Professor Greer was just talking about with, mm. with you know, a minority, and the Republicans certainly aren't in the minority in, in the legislature, but but a vocal minority who is pushing legislation that, you know, that polls show have widely unpopular with a majority of Georgians. You know, we talked about with guns, we talked about with abortion way back when, when, when the AJC polled regularly on religious liberty, it also was, was um, disavowed by a majority of Georgia voters. But look, Republicans have a, an edge in the Georgia legislature, a solid edge, and they're looking to use it. And we, we talk about this a lot, and it's not terribly surprising, but lawmakers, Governor Kemp, uh, Speaker John Burns, even Lieutenant Governor uh, Burt Jones came into the session saying that they want a more consensus-driven legislation, and they still might get their way. Um, but we have a number of lawmakers, and some of them are very powerful, who are pushing measures like this religious liberty uh, return that will be very divisive. And for yes, four years ago, it, it, the, the debate about a comeback attempt was a big deal. But seven years ago, it was the biggest deal under the gold dome. And that was the year in 2016, when then Governor Nathan Deal ended up vetoing religious liberty amid threats of boycotts, amid threats of economic backlash, um, because critics feel or say that this religious liberty measure um, protects and enables discrimination, particularly against the LGBTQ community in Georgia. Um, boy, thank you for reminding me. It was that long ago, 2016. Uh, I didn't. I wasn't thinking about it in those terms. And in fact, it was back then that then Speaker David Ralston tried to take the edge off that measure as well by introducing what he called the Pastor Protection Act, which was yeah. a much yeah. scaled down much less onerous to the opponents uh, version of uh, that uh, uh, measure. But, uh, Audrey, uh, Greg certainly makes the point that the critics are worried about that. If you're a gay married couple, you want to go adopt from, say, Catholic uh, charity uh, organization, whatever, uh, you may be turned down uh, because of your uh, sexual orientation, because you're, you have a gay uh, marriage and and one of the reasons that be, although Ed Setzler says and Governor Kemp has said he could accept a a religious liberty bill that mirrors the federal statute, there's only one problem with that, and that's that Georgia does not have a civil liberties statute that protects the rights of the LGBT uh, community, which would be a counterbalancing force, Audrey. <clears throat> You're muted, Audrey. You know, I had to do that at least once in 2023. Okay, back to yeah. my old practice. So um, you're absolutely right, uh, Bill, and that's probably why we're going to see um, opposition to this bill galvanized. And I just want to know, I, I remember in 2016, the governor came and spoke to our class, actually, in applied politics. And it was Governor Deal, and he was so <coughs> very proud 
got he basically got a standing ovation from the students who are really concerned about that. And I'll mention Brian Robinson, who's been on your show multiple times. At that time, Brian worked on putting together a coalition of uh, both Republican and Democratic uh, aligned groups to fight this uh, piece of legislation. So I think we'll probably go back and see some of that, if not more so. Um, uh, because I believe that more and more people realize that one of the things that makes our state um, strong is the fact that we have stayed away from some of those issues, not all of them. We still have some that um, you know people have really strong and deep feelings about, uh, but we are different. We're supposed to be pro-business. And this bill, many people sort of in the in the chamber side of the Republican Party would be very disappointed on on it if it had a chance to pass. Alan. Well, I think it's pretty clear that what we're seeing here is that we have uh, a lot of these Republican uh, legislators um, who represent safe Republican districts and who are uh, interested in a finding ways to appeal to the Republican base, because that's what they uh, need to do in order to ensure that they won't face a primary challenge. Um, they're not worried about general elections for the most part. They're not worried about reaching out and appealing to independents or Democrats. Um, they're worried about stirring up their base. Uh, and these are the sorts of issues that stir up the base. And so you're seeing that the legislators who are, who are introducing these sorts of bills and, and who are the loudest advocates for them are the ones who represent some of these very safe Republican districts and who are you know, positioned pretty far to the right. Um, but it's a, it's a, these, are, these are policies that have strong support uh, among the core Republican uh, voters. And so it's very difficult you know, for other Republicans who might prefer to not you know, see these sorts of things brought up in the session, uh, it'd be very hard for them to actually stand up and oppose them. So um, I, again, um, this, this is the difference between primary election, general election, um, governing, and, um, and then maintaining a seat. Um, because having all of these uh, components to come together, whether it is a, a non-election year, or if you're just looking to your base, Again, it's the the loud minority that is um, overshadowing, you know, what the majority of the people want. So, you know, part of me says that in this republic, um, the people have the ability through their, you know, basic citizenship to vote um, to to allow for their voices to be heard in this matter. So, if the majority has some challenges with uh, some of these type of culture wars that does not really move policy forward. It doesn't move us forward economically. It doesn't move us forward, you know, from a strength standpoint, if we're looking at security, these are strictly uh, to use again, Nikki Haley's words to divide the country. Um, and so it's fascinating to me that, you know, the contradiction of liberals are dividing or Republicans are dividing them. Well, perhaps, you know, those that are in primary elections are doing that very well themselves. And then it's creating um, this awful dichotomy that the people have to, to work with when it comes to general election. Uh, Greg, I know you've got to leave us in a couple minutes because they need all the journalists in the pen 
as we like to describe <laughs> where reporters are put in these uh, settings, even though Haley doesn't speak till 11. Uh, I'm grateful that you're here at all. But let me turn to one more piece of legislation. Uh, well, we, we, I shouldn't say it's a piece of legislation. To the best of my knowledge, it hasn't been written yet. But we did have a Senate uh, committee hearing the other day on what everybody refers to as don't say gay, which is, of course, comes out of Florida and Ron DeSantis. What's what's happening with that? Yeah, this is another in the sort of the, the realm of the culture wars, and it would prohibit teachers in public schools, K through 12 public schools, from from discussing issues of 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 sex and gender. And it brings up all those those issues that we we, we saw debated last year about um about uh, you know history and and talk, discussions of slavery and this isn't these are efforts um, to to put more guardrails around what teachers can and cannot say in classrooms and you know teachers by and large have pushed back on this because they don't want to uh, feel like every word they utter uh, could be under the microscope and so this legislation we're not sure you know if it's if it has a real um, you know, momentum behind it, but it has been introduced. It's Senate Bill 88. And oh. there are uh, provisions in this that would also even apply to private schools. Um, and in many cases, to other places that even oversee children like camps. So this is pretty broad ranging. Again, it's there's a lot of legislation out there that doesn't go anywhere and might just get a hearing. And we're not sure if this falls in that realm, but it's certainly something we'll be very closely watching. All right. We're going to let you go. We're going to take a break in a minute. But I got to ask you, and we, and I'm going to ask the panel about this measure in a second. But, but Greg, before you go, I want to I want to hear whether or not did I hear a subtle change in your thinking about Brian Kemp's future? You've said a couple times on the show in the past couple of weeks. Oh no, Brian Kemp's not really going to mount a presidential campaign. He doesn't have any of the organization in place. You know. But at the beginning of the show, it sounded like maybe you were rethinking that just a little bit. Is that right? <laughs> well, I still, I still personally am very, very skeptical about it. Uh, I think he'll be in the mix for VP. But, you know, I keep on hearing from people close to him every time I say this or every time I write something about it, that, that he has not ruled out a White House run and that he wants to stay in the mix. Now, is he visiting South Carolina or Iowa, New Hampshire? These No. Um, he's also not pushing for Georgia to be an earlier state in next year's primary, which would be, a, to me at least, a telltale sign. But at the same time, um, they're saying, and I quoted uh, one of his top advisors in a story a couple of days ago, that all options are on the table. All options are open. So we'll, we'll, we'll see how that plays out. I, I think I got this right. I think it was your, the, the uh, MSNBC, which you do analysis for right now, I think they put up photographs of potential presidential candidates as they talked about Nikki Haley. And I think it was on MSNBC, not CNN, that I saw Brian Kemp's picture included in that mix. Interesting. Interesting. <laughs> All right, Greg Bluestein, I know you got to get ready for Nikki Haley. Thank you again so much for being with us. And I do envy you. I do miss the days of heading out around the country to cover presidential campaign announcements. So have a great day. We look forward to your reporting in the AJC later. Take care, Greg. Audrey Haynes, I'd like to get your take on uh, uh, something that Tammy 
said, Tammy Greer said uh, right before the break, and I, I guess I want to push back just a little bit. We know it's certainly true that Republic, well, Democrats go through the same problems, that you run to the right or left to win a primary, and then it becomes more difficult to win your general election. But, but Audrey, in Georgia, we still have every constitutional office filled by a Republican. Republicans are still in the majority in the state legislature, despite the fact that they've passed any number of uh, hot-button culture uh, issues. Now, the abortion law passed by one vote, so that might be an exception. A Republican could run without having said they voted for it. But, but I'm not sure we, we have changed enough in this state that those culture issues uh, really hurt you when you run in a general election in many of the races on the ballot, yes or no? No, that's a that's a tough question, right? So I, I would just mention that there's all kinds of ways that um, parties are affected by that. So it may help you when you run in your primary. Uh, it may um, it may be more damaging in the general election, but it really just depends on your district. So much of this is geographically yeah. related. It depends on you know uh, what the margins are, and the margins are still in favor of Republicans and a lot of parts of the state, I would say that as we look at things changing incrementally, it, that was my dog. He's very interested in, in politics, if you heard him right now. But I mean, they're looking at identification, party identification, and they're outside of that small majority, there are a lot of Republicans who want things to go back to, you know, more pragmatic politics. You, you see it from Kemp. And I, I would say I went and looked at uh, Kemp's, um, you know, pack pictures. They're nice pictures. They're 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 pictures of Kemp that are very appealing. <laughs> that's why so many people are interested in Kemp because he's someone who's really conservative. There's some there's some culture issues he talks about, but they're the ones that Republicans feel strongly about. Less about gay rights, more about abortion. You know, more about taxes, less about you know, some of these other issues. He does get into the girls' sports, but, you know, there's this balance. Um, but in the long run, that's what we look at as political scientists. It's going to be hard for Republicans to truly become a majority party if they hold on to a lot of these culture war issues. And there is fatigue. You know, there is a lot of fatigue across both parties right now. So I, I think we still need to pay attention to them. And, and, and I suspect, Tammy, that's what you would say, is that we, incremental change is happening uh, largely, at least in part, because of this kind of cultural uh, uh, warfare going on. Yeah. Right. And then, you know, I, we've talked about before that um, sometimes the fear drives conservative voters, yet fear um, mm -hmm. keeps um, liberal and progressive voters away from the polls. Um, and then when we look at, um, you know, the vote, the turnout here in Georgia is, is you know, hanging below 60 percent. So one could argue that the politics remains the same because there is, you know, on a great day, 60 percent of people who are eligible to vote in Georgia actually go to the polls. All right. Um, Alan, I want to ask you, I want to change the subject because tomorrow we are expecting that Robert McBurney will release portions of the special grand jury report on their whole investigation of efforts to overturn the 2020 election. Now, we know there's going to be a lot of substance missing from that, um, but 
uh, Fonnie Willis has laid out the areas of law where she thinks there's, you know, she's looking to see whether there was criminal wrongdoing, criminal solicitation to commit election fraud, making a false statements. Uh, we do know that, that the report suggests that there may have been false statements made by people who testified, conspiracy, racketeering, <laughs> violation of oath of office, involvement in violence or threats related to election administration. That's a broad range, and we're not going to see the details, but we're going to get some hints, don't you imagine? Oh, absolutely. I think we're going to uh, see sort of what the outlines of the case are that she's bringing. Uh, it's becoming clear that um, indictments are forthcoming. Um, and, and I think for the right now that it's the Fonnie Willis Fulton County investigation represents the most immediate threat to Donald Trump's political future and his presidential campaign. Um, there is a distinct possibility, I think, that Trump himself uh, will be indicted. When you look at the areas of law that she's bringing up and the things, the kinds of illegal behavior that she's targeting, uh, it seems to me that that Trump has to be, you know, one of those who she is looking at, um, and and who's you know likely to be indicted along with some other you know prominent Georgia politicians who participated in that effort to overturn the election, um, uh, and served as you know fake electors and uh, and so on. So um, I think this is going to be a really big deal. We, we we won't get all the details as you said, but. I think it will give us some hint tomorrow of just how serious this is and, and how serious the uh, threat, that, how serious the threat this poses uh, to Trump and his, and his political allies in, in Georgia. Yeah, you know, I'm glad you mentioned uh, fake electors. Audrey, uh, the election of state party chairs is usually an intramural affair that the public doesn't really care much about. But it is of, of note that David Schaefer the current <clears throat> chair of the Georgia Republican Party isn't going to run for another term. One of the reasons may be because he's a target of the investigation as a fake elector himself. And, of course, because he's completely at odds with Brian Kemp. <clears throat> yes, and I would uh, note, too, and, and I'm sorry, Audrey is always guilty of doing something wrong on the radio. And right now, I can't get that toy <laughs> away from my So if you hear it. <laughs> I apologize. We don't hear it. But let me just say, I don't, we don't if, if you, um, if you, I want to encourage your listeners to read the laws. Um, though there's an article by Tamar Hallerman that came out that goes through them. And almost anybody in, in with any common sense will read those laws, pair together what happened in with our election here in Georgia and go, oh my God, they have broken so many laws. Um, and it was a conspiracy. And I would note uh, that Schaefer also told the federal um, committee that Trump asked them to do that. All right. Um, I got to interrupt because uh, Chase McGee says we're completely out of time. But Natalie and Chase, why don't we post a link to uh, Tamar's article? Because it does really lay out the potential charges. Um, what a great conversation. Thank you so much, Audrey Haynes, Tammy Greer. And Alan Abramowitz, and of course, we were so happy Greg Bluestein was with us earlier. We're out of time completely. 
I have just enough time to say I'll see you all tomorrow. And in the meantime, please take care and stay healthy, everybody. Bye-bye.